Hey, murder lovers. My name is Mackenzie. This is Fatina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. (sighs) (laughs) And all things spooky. (laughs) Okay, so Alcatraz. Um, Alcatraz won really happy. I was happy about that because I've always wanted to look into it and actually, I like I just told you, I went out and bought a book. Also, since the other option was something about like an exorcism, yeah. um, it's probably for the best. Yeah, no, totally glad that this one, even hindsight, even more so now. So, the Alcatraz stories are a lot and there's so many of them and I got this book because I started looking on the internet and all I could find was the same two or three uh, experiences or encounters over and over again. So I, w- I was like, there's there's got to be more to this than just these two or three s- stories that are roaming through the internet. So there's got to be more to this than just these, you know, uh, like... Block 14D, which was a story that one of our listeners sent in. Yeah. Um, and, and I'll talk about that as well, but there's a lot more. So I'm going to start a little bit from the beginning, like the whole history of Alcatraz and the island of Alcatraz. It's said that it's one of the most haunted places in the U.S. And it's definitely one of the most visited haunted places in the U.S. Because it's now set up to be a tourist attraction. It's part of the national parks, like conservation, like it is a national park. So... People take ferries there almost on a daily basis with a tourist. And there's usually groups of 50 plus more people with tour guides that show them the grounds. Alcatraz Island is 22 acres, so it's fairly big. It's off the San Francisco Bay. It can be seen from the shoreline, and you can also see San Francisco from the Alcatraz shoreline. So it's only, I think, eight miles from San Francisco Bay to this island. So it's not terribly far. You can still definitely see it um, both ways. Not on foggy days, which is kind of goes into play with uh, the whole mystery behind the Alcatraz Island. But um, now, this day and age, it's highly visited and there's a lot of stories that go into it. A lot of people know kind of the surface of what the ghosts are and the spirits and the history about it. And... I'm going to tell you a little bit more, so hopefully if you ever <laughs> spark up a conversation about Alcatraz, um, you'll be the expert in the group. So Alcatraz Island, um, before there was the infamous jail or penitentiary or used as a place for holding anyone, was commonly used by the alone tribes that were living in San Francisco Bay. They used this island, which was scarce of any natural resources as a place where they marooned and exiled anyone who made any crimes against the tribe. So anyone that just had any transgressions or just didn't go with uh, uh, the rules of the tribes, they were exiled to this island. Not only because it was a terrible place to live that had no natural resources, But they also believe that this island carried evil spirits and that there was evil spirits that would almost teach the people that were exiled there a lesson Mm. um, for why they were being bad. So some of them were exiled there for shorter periods of time, almost like their own jail system, but some were there for their life 
Yeah. Um, so they carried like sentences. Exactly. On this island. So they believed, um, and the Ohlone's also used this island as a place to do some type of worships and uh, rituals mm-hmm. to appease the spirits because although they believe there were evil spirits on this island, if they appeased them, they would keep them at bay there as opposed to bringing them onto the bay and to the area that they were yeah. living in. Yeah. So the Ohlone's were big about um, kind of what goes around comes around type of thing. Mm-hmm. What they put into the earth is what they're going to cultivate. The good that they put in is the good that they, they're going to put out. They did, they did have a chief um, that was usually and typically the eldest person in the tribe. And it was more of an advisor type of role. And they really, this person really managed the tribe or advised the tribe on what to do in war type situations more than anything. If it wasn't a war type situation with another tribe, they kind of just stood at bay and they just oversaw their tribe, but they weren't like ruling with an iron fist or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, the person that had the most like spiritual command over these tribes was of course a shaman who was usually someone who had had a traumatic experience or an altering life experience earlier in their life and was given supernatural powers in their older life that helped them heal people in their tribes and also keep them safe from evil spirits and also did all the rites of passages and all the rituals within a tribe. So I wanted to include that in my story of Alcatraz because I think it's important to know where it came from because it obviously didn't sprout from nowhere. Agreed. So um, not only the Ohlone tribes, there were other neighboring tribes in the San Francisco Bay Area that sometimes they would go to war for materials and whatnot with these tribes. But all in all, all these tribes, what they had in common is that they believed that the island was inhabited by evil spirits and that on this island, they had what was called a Mata Kagmi. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly. If I didn't, if someone knows how to pronounce it correctly, please let me know. But this was the Modoc name for Sasquatch, the modern day Sasquatch. Mm. It was also known as um, the Chiwitanka, the Maximista, or the Yayahuas. I'm hoping I'm saying those correctly. But the, all those AKAs, now in age, Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Yeah. Okay. So they believe that they're, this creature thing was sympathetic for the natives, but also defended them from enemies. And if they ever were in trouble, both on the bay or on the island, it would lead them to safety. So one of the stories or like um, common folklore stories that goes with this Matakagni is that in 1897, there was a man who had an encounter with this Matagagmi on the island because people would usually go there to go fish off of. Okay. Instead of being in the crowded San Francisco Bay Area with would be other fishermen. So they would go onto the island to fish off of. And this man said that he had this encounter where he first noticed the smell, which is what you normally hear about Sasquatch or Bigfoot. And he turned around and there was this eight to ten foot tall thing Harry, of course, that 
was looking at him almost like a wondering what are you like you're a human what are you type of look you know and the the man says that he turned around and as a peace offering he showed the matakagmi his string of fish that he had caught that day and put it out to offer it to him put it mm-hmm. down set walked back the matakagmi approached it grabbed it walked away peacefully there was no like evil or attack on him right. no encounter so this man said that you know he met the matakagmi with this idea of you don't harm me i won't harm you if anything we could help each other out mm-hmm. and a couple days later the man at his cottage woke up to deer skin that was ready to be bleached and prepared at the front door for his house. And it happened time and time again that whenever the crops were low, there was like a big bunch of berries in front of his house or fruits, and he believes it was the Matakagami looking out for him. And years after that, he was back on this island because there was a, there was a gold mine rush in on this island. They were looking for that. He was bitten by a snake, and he fought off the snake, he killed it, and he tried crawling back to where he knew people were at. All he remembers is passing out from the pain and from the poison, and when he woke up, he was being surrounded by six of these smatakogmies. They were all eight to ten feet long, and they brought him back to health, and he eventually made it home and back to his you know, people that he was working with. And ever since then, he told a story that he could always hear their groans and stuff in the woods, like kind of just saying hello. So that's as good as it gets as far as what was being encountered on that island. Yeah. So other tribes in the area believed in what's called the, the Bukwus, and that's B-U-K-W-U-S. I looked this up, and all I could find as far as the imaging on it, there's no hand-drawn imaging obviously no photographs but what is commonly associated with the imagery on this are face masks that are usually very decorative Mm. and have really long hair on them so they are often compared and sometimes mistaken to be the lore of bigfoot but as the similar as far as the similarities go the only two things they have in common are their height and how hairy they are As far as other similarities, that's as good as it gets because the Bukwus um, are the embodiment um, embodiment of evil. So they're the opposite of a benevolent Sasquatch or Bigfoot that's just out looking. Sasquatch and Bigfoot, as far as I have, you don't, it's not an attack story or anything like that that comes from those. So the Bukwus, they uh, they believe that the Bukwus are like just savage things they're strong beyond belief um they have human-like features um but they also give like undead drowning vibes (laughs) so victims um they're zombie-like and they believe that they that the bukus are the tortured souls of either fishermen that were fishing off the coast of Alcatraz and died and like just were restless Mm -hmm. and the Bukus invite other people to drown themselves to join them and morbid really really bad um so these they believe are the spirits of those that died on the shores of, of Alcatraz 
So the Bukus, apparently the story goes that they try to take the living by offering them, by appearing like normal men that are offering these fishermen something to eat while they're off on the shoreline. And if the man is foolish enough to take food from an unknown person, they take them, they kill them, and they turn them into a buku. And the last thing that anyone has ever recounted from the people that have rejected this shelf full of fake food or spirit food is that they see their eyes glow red. Oh. Yeah. I hate yeah. That. So that's just like the super history stuff that's been passed down generation after generation. Yeah. Not so much on a record of as to what happened. Right. So here here starts the part that does begin like on what's on record. So so there was a Spanish invasion that started. They came into San Francisco Bay. Spaniards started trying to convert the natives that were already on this island or on this uh, bay to Catholicism, to Christianity. And a lot of the times, a lot of, a lot of them were taken into slavery. The, the Spaniards were, they thought converting people by bringing them into their home almost. Mm -hmm. And, um, trying to teach them about Christianity, but at the same time they were using them as slaves because they were offering some food or some shelter sometimes. And then when someone didn't want to convert or they were pushing back any kind of way, they killed them. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's normal. Like settlers do. Yeah. So the Ohlone tribe, what they did to try and salvage what was left of their tribes at this point was move to Alcatraz Island, even though they believed that there was evil spirits there it's better that than was, dealing with the Spaniards. Exactly. That was their last hope. They said, you know, we're going to try and survive here. The more we move inland on the island, the less the Spaniards are going to come after us because they know of the stories that we've told, that there's evil spirits here yeah. for those that try to attack us, that if we treat the spirits right, they're going to protect us. But if they try to come in as invaders, we're, the spirits are going to attack them. And slowly but surely, um, the Ohlone tribes and men that were trying to be breadwinners went more and more into San Francisco Bay to get jobs. They were traveling back and forth. Eventually, the tribes dwindled enough to where they were no longer inhabiting the island. But a lot of the people that would go into the island to fish, um, the story goes that because of the infamous rolling fogs that happened in the San Francisco Bay, they would meet their demise either trying to get out of the island or trying to boat back into inland. Okay. So a lot of people lost their lives because of this fog. Um, that's not attributed to any spirits or anything, but just the fact that a lot of souls were lost needlessly because they saw this fog as a scary thing. Moving forward in the timeline, this island was later used by the U.S., of course, when the U.S. was trying to acquire California, Oregon, all these places, as a place where they would store torpedoes and mines because they also saw that as a potential key spot to protect any more invaders into the San Francisco Bay because it was the first line of attack that, or first, you know, first sight that they could have of any boats coming in. Mm -hmm. So they set up like cannons and stuff off of the Alcatraz Island, hoping to prevent any invaders coming in. Gotcha. 
So with that, of course, came jobs of people who were loading on, offloading stuff off the boats and people that were manning these, this artillery and people that were just there to keep the, you know, keep the whole thing going. Um, so they used the whole island for an armor and defense type center. And because of the barracks or grounds that were already built there for the art artillery, they started using it as a place where they held like um, the worst of the worst criminals. And I know we talk about that later too, because of course, like Machine Gun Kelly and Al Capone gets right. sent there, but that's not until it becomes an actual penitentiary. Right. Yeah. So before that though, they were still using this as a place to exile people who were either war criminals or were people that were not coming up to serve when they needed to serve. Oh, they Wait, were, was, uh, um, they were, um, avoiding the draft or whatever. Yes, exactly. Deserters. Deserters. During this time where there was just this barren place, um, the people that were there to keep it overnight and just keep an eye on things, this is when they start experiencing these paranormal times. They start hearing drums. These troopers start hearing drums in the middle of the night when it's dark out. Ooh. And so one in particular says that he followed it out to what was still a barren place. It was still kind of wooded. And... As soon as he approached it, he knew he was close enough to where it was like a couple feet away from him, like this staccato type drumming, like very poignant drumming, and it stopped. He walked back, he was spooked, but then he was like, well, that's just weird. And then there's a very specific story of three men that were unloading food supplies, and it was later in the evening. They also heard this drumming. They followed it where the sound was coming from for them. Yeah. And what they walked up on was a bonfire that they said was really close to this wooden dock and they know that it wouldn't have been authorized by anyone on the barracks because that would have been really dangerous. It could have blown it could have burned up the one dock on the place. As they got closer, not only did they see the bonfire, but they saw people dancing around the bonfire in a circle and as soon as they stopped they all looked at each other like who are these people yeah they all disappeared so the drumming the bonfire and the people dancing around the bonfire all disappeared and there's records of this story of them telling this story yeah. because they all reported it since they had left their post they didn't want to get in trouble for leaving their post and walking away so far from it that they actually recorded it and like put it on paper that this is what they had all experienced. So they all tell the same account. They walked up on this bonfire and it, what they say they recounted as would look like native Americans dancing around about a bonfire. Although there was artillery, heavy artillery held at this place, there was never actually any fire shot from this Island to any oncoming boats or anything because mm -hmm. there was the that threat ne never actually came to fruition um but there's a lot of there's a lot of reports of either people that were on parole or just people that were there as um, part of their appointments that they hear men screaming and ammunition carts moving from one place to another as if they're getting ready for war and that they also hear cannon shots um in the middle of you know the night um as if war is happening right. and there there's been no recorded battles that happened there 
other than the only thing that could be attributed to maybe this residual sound of cannons and gunfire was in on the centennial of the U.S. on July 4th, 1876, they put off like a celebratory cannon shot, but because the artillery at that point was so outdated, it actually shot off wrong and it ended up, the embers started burning people on the lower step of shots because there was two different rungs of shots and it started burning some of the men and their clothes down at the bottom one. So men were screaming along with the fire shots. Mm -hmm. So these okay. screams of men and the cannon shots were probably residuals of men just having this excruciating burning sensation yeah. at the shoreline. Okay. So that's before Alcatraz was a confinement island for people that mm -hmm. were jailed or before it actually became a the US like high maximum security penitentiary that I think we all know it as. Yeah. So uh, when it actually became uh, an actual penitentiary there is lots of stories about people that would that were incarcerated there and how maybe their spirits and why their spirits are lingering around. So those are the stories that I'm going to dive into right now. Um, before I do that, I do want to mention this fun fact that Alcatraz was named actually by one of the Spaniards that were trying to settle San Francisco Bay. Oh, I didn't realize that. Um, what does Alcatraz mean? Pelicans. Oh. Yeah. So because... I it was something about a rock. So when he... No, it's, it's known as the rock. Right. But so because of the large number of pelicans that he can see from the San Francisco Bay onto the island, he just called it the, the island of Alcatraz. So Alcatraz is pelicans. pelicans. Right. Okay. So um, that's what that literally translates to. Because it was so hard to get materials onto the island, like food, supplies, clothes, etc. Um, let me just lay out a little bit of Alcatraz and Island, how it is set up as we know it now. So there is this high maximum security um, jailhouse there or prison. There is also a huge mansion that was the warden's mansion. Mm -hmm. I think it's like a 14-room or 17-room mansion. It's gigantic. And there's also, for all intents and purposes, a, an entire apartment complex that was for the people that were um, working in the jail, for cooks, for cleaners, for their families if they wanted to stay there as well, like a school for the kids. So they had like a whole little town within this island for people that were working there. It was secluded, of course. It had its own um, gates and everything around it, but nonetheless, it was still on the island. So one of the things that happened early on uh, was that there was a tuberculosis outbreak because there wasn't enough materials to take care of these people. Um, one of the nurses that was called actually from San Francisco to come in and help she contracted tuberculosis mm -hmm. and because of course this was a disease that at this point they had not really gotten under control. Yeah. Right. They didn't let the nurse leave. They didn't leave. They didn't, <laughs> they didn't let the nurse leave. 
Um, they didn't let her get any treatment. They actually quarantined her in the medical ward all by herself. And all she wanted to do was help. But of course, she became sickly and she yeah. couldn't come out. It was um, very deadly back then. Very. And she ended up passing away and she was put into this communal grave. Um, and a lot of people tell her story about how she is one of the people who is still in the medical ward. And that is the woman that they hear weeping because she was weeping not only because she couldn't help other people because she and herself was in pain. So that is, there's not many women ghost stories at Alcatraz because it was a men's high, you know, maximum security jail. Um, so this is one of the very few female stories that comes from Alcatraz as far as spirits go. The next spirit ghost story <laughs> is that of Joseph Dutch Bowers. He was inmate 210. He was initially uh, brought in on a postal robbery that netted him $16.38. Rolling in cash. Back in 1936. What is that in today's world? I don't know. It sounds like 50 bucks. I have no idea, but it's, it sounds like it would have been something egregious, but it's not. That's your bet is $15 or $50? No, I'm thinking it's like a thousand bucks or something. You said it was 1936. 1936, and it was how much? $16.38. It's actually $314.90. Yeah. So, he... So, here's the story about him. Still not worth going to prison for. It's still not worth going to prison for. And of all places, Alcatraz, it sounds like his punishment was probably a little too rough for what it was. Yeah. Um, And that's what he thought as well. So, right off the bat, when he got to Alcatraz... He thought that this was too much for him, that this punishment was way too bad for what he had done. So right as soon as he got there, he tried scheming or trying to put the plan together on like how to get out of here and literally by any means necessary. So one of the things that he tried within, I I believe, two years of being there, and this is extreme, but he tried slashing his own throat, which is extreme and desperate um the jail psychiatrist just said that this was just a trying for attention that he wasn't really trying to get out that he was just trying to be at that point where he needed so much medical help that he would be taken off the island and again he was not successful in that Mm -hmm. so he lived and then two years later Joseph tried jumping a fence into the shoreline and of course he was caught by someone in the watchtower and they asked him to come down off the bullhorn but he didn't listen because he was like I'm trying to leave yeah and so he was shot twice and because he was halfway on the fence his body just slumped over the fence Mm -hmm. as it was shot so to this day guards and boaters that are near the island see a person trying to come off the fence and then just slump over on top of the fence. Nope. You wouldn't care for that at all. Nope. Okay, so... I'm assuming he died by being shot. Okay, he died right there on the fence, slumped over. So that is one of the spirits that is commonly seen, at least. You don't even have to be on the island. You could just be near it, and you can see someone trying to come over the fence and then just slump over the fence. (laughs) Because no matter what he tried, unfortunately, even in spirit, it sounds like he didn't get off the island. 
dun, dun, yep. Oh my god, so he's forever trapped he's trying forever to get off the trying island. trying to get off. It's like perpetually trying to get off the island. Oh my gosh, what if he's stuck in one of those time <sighs> A loop. things? Oh. Yeah. God. Um, god, yeah, those last moments would not be the way to do it. So I'm going to spit a lot of names at you, but Rufus Franklin, inmate uh, 335, Thomas Limerick, 263, Jimmy Lucas, 224. Um, so these three people, they did this grandiose. <laughs> I mean, everyone who tried to get off of Alcatraz has like this harrowing, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to try to do dig my stuff out of the That's why they literally spoon, have you know? made, me, made <clears throat> movies about exactly. the escape attempts. Yeah. So Jimmy Lucas um, was actually. Of all people, uh, one of the inmates who tried stab well, I believe succeeded in stabbing Al Capone while in the showers with half a scissor. Nice. Um, and he said that he did that because why not try to be bigger than the biggest man in there? I was gonna say, you like... know, if you're gonna want him some respect around the place. Um, <laughs> so those three men, though Rufus, Thomas, and Jimmy, they had this attempt, uh, or they they had this escape idea where they were going to try and get to the roof of the place because once you're on the roof, you could just scale down easy peasy, you know, swim a couple miles. But Jimmy, as they were trying to get to the roof, um, one of the first things that they did is that they grabbed a hammer. And they beat one of the officers who was unarmed, which I don't know why he was unarmed, but killed uh, one of the officers named Royal Klein. And then they did make it to the roof, but Rufus and Thomas were both shot by one of the officers that were on the roof. Um, and then Jimmy just, like, gave up and was like, all right, I'm not going to make it. Yeah, um, they don't need to get shot during this. But their ghosts or their spirits are still said to be seen on the roofs. All three of them or just the two that the were shot? T- the, all three of them oh. trying to get up to the roof. Uh, Jimmy died later in Alcatraz for okay. whatever reasons, but their spirits are still seen on the roof. And then there's still officers that say that they're there guarding or that they were there. And they would just see the three men, like, run up on them and then just vanish. Like, they would, like... It would be terrifying. Can you imagine? Having three men charge you? One v three ghosts? Like, no, thank you. No. No. So, that's still something that um, was told by officers years to come after that. Do you find a lot of these stories are ghosts trying to escape? Oh, yeah. That's terrifying. Just the people, like I said, they're in these loops. Yeah, Mm -hmm. trying to escape. Yep. Even somebody who died not trying to escape, his he's stuck still trying afterwards. Yep. Um, one of the biggest, bloodiest battles that happened actually inside the Alcatraz walls also was an escape attempt. Um, that included Sam Shockley, Joe Kratzer, and Marvin Hubbard, Marion Thompson, and Bernard Coy. Joe Kratzer was a bank robber. <laughs> he was at the height of his criminal career, public enemy number four for the FBI. Oh, what um, did he do? Bank robber. Why? I know. Did he kill people during this I, bank I, robbery? It just says bank robber. So I don't know if he killed people or not, or they're just there. I'd like you know, to think that they're like the people from the town. Like know, Ben Affleck. Lo- <laughs> like if you're going to be on number four on FBI's Most Wanted, you better Make be like Ben count. Affleck from the town. What I found that a lot of people that ended up in Alcatraz was because they, in their state jails or, pen, or you know, state prisons, 
would weasel their way out of jail or would try to escape and they're like, oh, you want a place to escape from? We're going to send you to Alcatraz. Yeah. So it wasn't that their crimes were so crazy or just off the wall or yeah. egregious or anything. They were just like, you're an you escape, escape artist. Yeah. Right. So they sent them to the rock. Although bank robbers back in that day are a lot different than bank robbers yes. as we think of today. Like very often bodies fell yes. where bank robberies occurred back mm-hmm. then. Sam Shockley was a kidnapper and a bank robber. And for that, he was given a life sentence Sam Shockley, it's very well documented that he had a very low IQ. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in books that were written and Sam Shockley is mentioned because of this battle that I'm about to talk about, one of the books said that it was like shooting a kid that his IQ was so low. Oh. But that's just what the books and the records say. But people that were in prison with him said that like as a criminal, his IQ wasn't low. Right. But as a human, right, his IQ was slow. Um, so Moran Thom- Thompson had a life sentence plus 99 years for kidnapping and murder. A lot of kidnapping back in these days. I feel like they're all pretty much like kidnappers, bank robbers, yeah. mobsters. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Marvin Hubbard, um, I don't know his charges, but Clarence Carnes, he was the youngest person ever incarcerated at Al- Alcatraz. He had a life sentence plus 99 years. I don't know what this plus 99 years thing is, but apparently it was like a thing they gave out a lot of. So that is for, what was he convicted of? It, it doesn't say, I didn't know why. Okay, so the last guy, probably like the life sentence comes with the murder charge and the 99 years comes kidnapping. with the kidnapping or mm. something like that. Like it's separate sentences for each charge. Oh, okay, okay. And Bernard Coy, who was the planner of this whole ordeal, was... was in on a life sentence. So these people had nothing to lose, Mm -hmm. but try and get off the rock. Right, because they're like, listen, we're here indefinitely, so we have time. So I believe there's a movie about this where they overpowered some of the officers, um, and they tried to make it into the artillery room, the gun room, and they had this all-out shootout. There was hostages that were being taken. Some people were just locking themselves in their cells just because they're like, we don't want to be a part of this. Even though these men got to the keys and opened up all the cells and said, who's coming with us? But the inmates were like, not me. Lock the shit up. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Count me out. Yeah, no thank you. Like, I'm good with my three meals. And (laughs) so it was a bloodbath. And... It got to the point where the officers on Alcatraz had to call in, like, Marines to help them get get it back under control. Get the situation under control. Or Sam Shockley gave himself up. He actually did not partake in actually shooting any of the officers or taking any hostages. As soon as he saw it getting out of hand, he was like, I'm out. He actually got back into his cell and put down the gun that he had taken and got back into his cell. Um, Moran Thompson and Clarence Carnes, kind of the same thing. They didn't go back to their cell, but they did not partake in, like, actually shooting anyone. One of the officers that was taken hostage and actually was shot, he had the forethought to two things. The keys were taking, taken from him mm-hmm. that were would have been the last door between them and freedom to actually get outside. He took that key and he hid it underneath the toilet seat of the cell that he was in, that Mm -hmm. he was put into. Um, And he gave the keys to these men, 
but they were trying to get out and they didn't have the key. They didn't know that though. Um, but he wrote down the name of the, all these six men and circled Kretzer, Hubbard, and Croy, and Coy as the masterminds behind this whole escape attempt. Okay. So before he died, this right. is one of the last things that he did. So when the Marines came in, they cornered the men in one of these corridors. And so but all of, so Joe, Marvin, or, let me call them by their last names because that's how you'll probably hear it often. So Kretzer, Hubbard, and Coy were all shot down in the corridor. Um, and you can, their spirits are still lingering there. So people often will hear, and guards, even nowadays, there's still national park guides and people that are manning these stations. Mm -hmm. So they still hear the screams of men asking to be let out from this corridor to the point where it's one of the most haunted places. There's like three places that are like especially a lot of activity in Alcatraz and the, mm -hmm. this corridor is definitely one of them because there's three of them that are lingering there. Um, but it got to the point where they welded the door open but they put a plexiglass door in so tourists and for the attraction's sake they can still look into it but they can't go into it. Right. And because the Marines were involved, there was grenades thrown in, so you can still see the remnants of concrete floor and wall chunks missing from the Marines throwing grenades in. So their spirits are still lingering in that quarter to this day. All in all, five people were killed in this, what they call the Battle of Alcatraz. Um, so three of them were these three men's and the two guards that were killed. Um, there was also 18 other guards that were injured. So all of the other people that were injured, 18 in total, were a combination of all the guards as well as some of the non-participating inmates that were just in the crosshairs of them just shooting wildly, trying to just running around because at this point they couldn't get out the last door. I wonder if you would have less escape attempts that happened in Alcatraz if they'd known that they would be condemned to a life of haunting. Ooh. Like, mm. survey. <laughs> right. Does this change your... <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? Like, hey, you can try this, but if you fail, you're stuck here forever. Trying to escape. Yeah. Day after day. God, that would be the worst. So one of the other things, like I mentioned earlier, the warden's mansion, and I say mansion because this is a multiple, multiple room place. It was three stories, 17 room mansion that was built in 1921. So this is where the warden lived. Um, and they often used the more um, docile inmates as servants, which is odd, but they did. So before the actual prison of Alcatraz was built, I, I'd explained a little bit that there was this underground like dungeon thing that was on there before that this is where like this common hole where they kept people. This is obviously one of the places with the most activity. And one of those people that didn't believe in the supernatural and just these experiences that he was hearing was this warden, Warden Johnston. And... As he was taking a group of tourists around because I believe there were going to be like potential investors in the jail, which that's a whole other topic, but they, he was showing them around and they could, they walked down to the basement because of course that's something that he wanted to show off as an asset, 
But as he was walking down with this whole group of people, even though he didn't believe in anything like this himself, they heard the sound of a woman weeping, which again, might've been that nurse. Mm, okay. And they, he, he couldn't ignore it because there was a whole group of people hearing it with him. And he got the key to go down there and go further, and he well, confirmed that a, there was nothing there. And it's a men's prison, so right. a woman crying would be exactly odd, super odd. Yeah, and just to hear crying in general, yeah. Like, mm. So there were. I don't know if it's because he's a non-believer, but I just think because of the area itself. So because he lived in this grandiose mansion. Um, he threw these lavish parties for all the people that worked at the prison and obviously the people that invested in the jail and all these things. Mm -hmm. But one of the parties that everyone looked forward to was the Christmas party. It's the warden's Christmas party. Um, this was the day before Christmas that he threw it. And like I mentioned, they had a lot of the, you know, the better performing and better acting prisoners act as, you know, servers and cooks for the party while they were doing these things and it's very well documented that during this specific party there was a party crasher mm -hmm. and everyone was in the main room and all of a sudden everyone felt this gush of cold wind come through them and everyone turned around to the same spot at the same time and they saw this man that just stood out because everyone else was dressed up nicely and just, yeah. you know, for the party. And there was this man with very distinguishable mutton chops and was staring there, just uh, standing there, just staring at the warden and just gave him a look of like a menacing type of look. Oh, yeah. And as soon as... And why everyone just stopped the party and started staring at him, it was because he was completely translucent. And so... I've heard this one. Isn't that yeah. weird? Yeah. And then as soon as... um, And then they had a fireplace going, but even though it was a roaring fire, there was another gush of wind that put out the fire, and then the apparition disappeared. Everyone witnessed it. Everyone talked about it. And it wasn't until... Uh, a couple years later that some of the men, the working uh, men working the prison had a poker night at the mansion in the game room. And sometime around midnight, the men all looked up at the same time from their game and saw the same spirit from the Christmas party a couple years back. And they recognized him as that same spirit because of his mutton chops that were so distinguishable and they realized it was the same man and the same thing happened where this rush of cold air just wafted through them and as soon as they all felt that air he disappeared again I wonder what its deal is with parties i don't know what it is a lot of the rangers at the park now um say that they see well now the house is burnt down the only the outside walls remain of it. It was burned down in the 70s. It, some say it's accidental. Some say it was on purpose by some people that were trying to occupy the island. But from what's left of the house, the rangers say that they see these orbs or these lights. And they almost look like they're dancing around inside the what would have been the rooms of the mansion. But they see those floating around whenever it's dark out. And they sometimes hear whispering and whispered conversations as they're walking past the house or what's left of the house of the mansion mm -hmm. 
before Alcatraz was a penitentiary, there was a lighthouse there. Mm-hmm. So there was an original one that was built there in 1853, and that was only working for a couple of years. In 1909, there was what is now the penitentiary was going up. And because it was taller than the lighthouse that was there and the lighthouse was no longer 360 visible, they had to build a much bigger one. So they did um, demolish the existing lighthouse. And as soon as the other one went up in in, um, 1909, people started reporting that they, through the fog on any given night, they would see the apparition of a full-pledged lighthouse where the old one was just materialize and suddenly be gone I don't know what it is about this lighthouse I couldn't find anything about if anything sinister happening happening inside of it um but this lighthouse just seems to not want to leave either so I don't know if it's the lighthouse is stuck in the loop as well (laughs) I'd be curious to know the difference between like human apparitions and stuff like that versus material structures yeah So there's a story about a guard who said he he started seeing a shimmer in the direction of where it was and as soon as he stepped foot he was almost foot he was toe to toe with where the old lighthouse was it materialized and as soon as he stepped back it was gone and the next day he quit. <laughs> yeah. He's like I'm going to head out now. Yep. So there's stories about the laundry room at Alcatraz, where the guards and and the rangers that tell the story say that it smells of smoke and it's so overwhelming, Um, at least it was at the beginning, where they thought there was an actual fire happening, and they would evacuate the building, go inspect it, make sure that there was no one in the area, and then, sorry, when they went down to go inspect it, there's absolutely nothing going on. There's no signs of fire or any smoke or any damage, and then the smell of smoke would also disappear as soon as they made it down to the laundry room. And it's it's just one of those urban legends that's kind of attached to the island. That's mm-hmm. just one of the things that keeps reappearing as people tell their stories about working there and whatnot. So this one, I'm sorry, it's it's a debunking of no, a that's common fair. story. That is fair. So one of the urban legends that's come from Alcatraz, and this is, I'll be honest, one of the ones that I had heard of yeah. before I, I went digging into this, was the story of Abby Butcher Maldowitz. Abby. So it's a female. No, it's a man. Oh, I haven't used that. I haven't it's heard that used A-B-I-E. as a male's name. It's A-B-I-E. Okay. The story that you've probably heard about this is um, that of Abby Butcher Maldowitz. Where this comes from is from a psychic that believes she picked up on the spirit of this of this guy called the butcher, um, and that he was killed inside the laundry room of the C block by two other inmates, and that of course his spirit stayed there because it's you know in forever unrest. Like bringing it back to like current times, due to the Freedom of Acts of Information or Freedom of Information Act, there is access to all the records of this prison, mm-hmm. and there was no one ever by that name by that nickname, so. The only record of this butcher mm-hmm. is from this psychic, and people have quoted her, and it's almost this thing that has developed into 
people believing it's so true that they quote it in their books and to their videos and whatnot as if it's true. They just take it for granted. They yeah. just take it as what it is, like what they're what they're hearing. But there's no actual record of anyone named Abby Malowitz or Butcher or that anyone was killed in the laundry room. So it's one of those things that it just kind of took off mm-hmm. by itself. But it's there's like no it said record. It, but of there it. was nothing to validate right, it. Right. Exactly. The story that I told about the men trying to escape through the roof that beat Officer Royal Klein with a hammer. So both rangers, employees, and people that were imprisoned at the time um, and after this say that they see a very nice man in officer's uniform just roaming around, checking on cells, and that's the spirit of Royal Klein because he was an unarmed officer. He was just walking around making his rounds when this attack on him happened with the hammer. So that's one of the spirits that's lingering there that he's just walking around doing his rounds from block to block. So another spirit that's been seen around is that of Rufus McCain. So Henry Young stabbed McCain with his homemade shiv, of course, like you do when you're in prison. Right. Um, yep. But it didn't kill him right away. Uh, Stabbings often don't. No. So McCain was taken to the hospital ward and where he was writhing in extreme pain from his stomach wound. He finally passed from his injuries. But all of those that were there at the time said that they had never heard a man shouting in so much pain before. So it is believed that because he left such an imprint of pain that his spirit is still there And so there's a lot of stories of guests, employees, and inmates after this that they would see someone in prisoner's uniform running through the hallways before he can reach a door or reach any type of hallway. He suddenly stops, clutches his stomach, and as soon as he falls to the floor, he fades. And on rare occasions, there has been reports of people seeing this exact same thing but also seeing blood squirting out of his wound. A lot of the people that believe the red-eye glowing thing in cell block D believe that it might be Rufus McCain because he was in so much pain that he's out for vengeance. I don't know how those two became to clash or how those crossroads came together that Rufus McCain might be the red eye glowing thing yeah because like i said at the beginning we have all these other folklores of yeah. red eye glowing things that feels more on so the nose. speaking of uh the glowing eyes we are going to walk into cell 14d now so the D isn't block, that yep. where olivia said she felt the choking yes okay okay so the so cell block d in general is and what well was um, the solitary confinement block. Okay. So these rooms were designed to basically deprive anyone basically. of any humanity. Yeah. Um, they have no windows, and not only were they regular bar doors, but there was also like a metal door behind that. So they're double doors. So there's a metal bar door that would clang first, and then... When the officers were being assholes, frankly, that's what most of the time what they were doing, like extra punishment, they would close the concrete door on top of that. So there was literally no light whatsoever. And 
I think anyone in darkness and just that deprivation is going to your imagination is going to run wild because yeah, that's what your mind does. It a little bit. Right. So 14D is specifically is notorious for the story that one of the inmates who there is no name for was put into 14D as a punishment, I'm sure, for something that he did in the prison. And he was yelling and yelling to be let out because there he was saying that there was another inmate in there with him that was trying to harm him and that he could see glowing red eyes. And mind you, he's in, like, pitch darkness. Right. And the officers, the story goes, were ignoring him because, of course, they'd heard everything from everyone trying to get out of these places. Right. And you're like, you're in there by yourself. You're like, just just do it. You You go to bed. And so they ignored his pleas to get out. And he was yelling and yelling. And then suddenly his yelling stopped. So they they figured, oh, he gave up. He's done yelling for the night. sleep, yeah. So the next morning, the story goes that they found him dead strangulated that was his cause of death pretty hard to strangulate yourself with no materials right did they find anything had caused the strangulation no but here's the thing there's no record of him there's no record of this happening so we don't know if this was actually happening but nonetheless the stories are that there was something in these cells with these men Mm -hmm. on the d block specifically 14D, and there's been numerous, numerous encounters recorded of people feeling something in 14D. So... Well, I could see... Why they wouldn't put it down? I could see why that record would get wiped. That's what I was thinking. Because the story goes that the day after they had declared him dead, moved him out, etc., etc., the next head count, um, they counted for all the men like they lined him up and he was in line again and as soon as they realized like oh shit counts off wait you died yesterday he disappeared so he became a full body apparition apparition the next day as well in body count yeah yeah one yeah because they would they'd have to blame somebody Mm -hmm. like if you don't want to believe that a spirit choked him then who's at fault and then that launches its whole other investigation so better to just make it disappear so here's one uh, that's really interesting and i'm glad i I got to read about because honestly this makes me want to go into this this just makes me want to go to alcatraz that much more i want to go so bad so the bird man robert the bird man strad he's my favorite right we love him so here's the thing i mean not like that but like have you seen the movie depicting his life yeah it's not true i know Okay. Super okay. Good. Upsetting. See, yeah. I'm glad that you know that though, yeah, yeah. because a lot of people, like we do with movies, if you don't do your own research, you're gonna believe what Hollywood feeds you. Yeah. So in the movies that are about his life, he's portrayed as this like benevolent, just like sweet old man he who wasn't. like did nothing wrong and like loved just birds. Just made birds and, his like, pets. Yeah. So uh, it's a little. It's I'm gonna go into the true crime portion because I think it's important for yeah. him. So he was born in 1890 in Seattle, Washington. He had an alcohol. We yeah, we were. He had an abusive alcoholic father, and by the time that he was 13 years old, um, he had had enough with that type of life. So he ran away from home, um, and he went to live in Alaska. By the time that he was 18 years old, he was already pimp, and okay. he. At this age, 
uh, at the age of 19, he killed a bartender because he wasn't trying to pay his tab. Tab. Yeah. Yep. Solid, so, solid human. Um, so he was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to 12 years. But while he was at the McNeil Island Penitentiary, Stroud constantly was trying to, uh, was getting into trouble. He would fight other inmates. He never listened to the guards. And he also had these fits of rage whenever he was told to do something. And he went as far as stabbing a fellow inmate. And he would steal narcotics from... The orderlies, and he forced the pharmacy workers to give him stuff as well. He attacked them on a regular basis, and he would just, in general, hate authority. Yeah. But he attacked the orderly to the point where they had to spend time in the hospital. That assault added six more months to his sentence, and shortly afterward, he was transferred to Leavenworth, which is also another famous penitentiary. While he was at Leavenworth, this is where the Birdman lore comes from and I guess it's not lore but his story as the Birdman came to fruition because while he was there he found a canary and he took it back to his cell brought it back to life kind of was on his last limb but he rehabilitated the the bird Mm -hmm. and then from there he just came fascinated by birds so he started doing all this research he was checking out all the books from the prison library on 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 birds and whatnot to the point where he wrote two very famous books that are used to this day in the bird community Mm -hmm. on diseases for birds and like how to cure diseases in birds so he did that great but then eventually because of his fame with this bird research he was given special privileges so he was given special tools to perform like science experiments for these diseases on birds and whatnot (laughs) a criminal's gonna crime he's gonna he's gonna keep doing what he knows criminal's gonna crime and so he started using these beakers and whatnots to start making his own hooch yeah. While he was in jail. Yeah. So with that, they're like, all right, dude, you're going to Alcatraz. Yeah. We're, we've had it with you. So when they sent him off to Alcatraz, um, they put him in cell block D, which is obviously one of the worst places in Alcatraz. When he was sent off to Alcatraz, he, he wasn't in terrible health shape, but the weather at Alcatraz completely did him in. Like, I don't know what it is about his body that was not reacting good, uh, well to this weather. Alcatraz is cold. It's in the bay. It's going to be, obviously, um, there's a lot of moisture in the air. So yeah. his body was not doing well with that. To the point where they took him down to the medical ward, and that's where he was imprisoned. In the medical ward. For 11 years. Oh my gosh. 11 years in the medical ward. Just that's where he was move in prison. him. Like, right. good God. So... And while he was in the medical ward, because he was no longer like a physical threat, because he was so ill all the time, a lot of the wards and a lot of, or a lot of the, the employees there would go down there and play cards with him. So the story goes that in the medical ward, on top of the nurse that sometimes people hear wailing, they also hear card shuffling, and sometimes they hear, like, whistling as if it were, like, a canary. So even though he didn't die in this prison, because eventually he was released, there's residual sounds of, like, whistling of, like, someone mocking a bird mm. in the medical ward, and they can also hear the shuffling. Um, and of all people, I 
can bet my last dollar that it's probably the man that spent 11 years in the medical ward. Oh, yeah. That is residual there. So another famous inmate um, was Alvin Francis Karpowitz. He was nicknamed Karpis by a school teacher who was, if you ask me, an asshole. Didn't want to say his last name or it was hard for her, so she just shortened it to Karpis. Yeah. Um, so, and then later on in life, his nickname became Creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, so creepy carvis carpus. Um, <laughs> and that's because some people the people that were just um in his gang or rolling, you know, doing gang things with him said that his smile was just creepy when he was talking about his holdups and how he killed people. So they just Ooh. called him creepy carpus. Called it for what it was. <laughs> to the point. Yeah. Um so another one this is another one that it totally warrants the true crime background on it because otherwise it doesn't make any sense so he was born in Canada he had Lithuanian immigrant parents that moved to Kansas Um, he was only 10 when he began doing criminal things he began stealing from stores in town and he would run errands for local prostitutes as a 10 year old does yes Um, so probably to get them cigarettes probably he, when he was running around with that crowd, he finally, he met, um, Arthur Witchy, which was a big shot or in his eyes, a big shot. Yeah. So he thought he had made it big by hanging out with these gang people, um, or these mob people. And they went on a crime spree together at this point. And then the Carpowicz family, the Carpus family moved to Chicago, which Chicago was like the hotbed for mob shit. If you're going right. to do mob shit. So, Chicago? What? No. No. Uh, never. <laughs> so, in 1925, Carpus was caught riding on the roof of a passing train and was sentenced to 30 days on a chain gang in Florida. So, I don't know if this happened in Florida or if he was just told to go serve time there. I wasn't clear on that. Um, but over the next couple of years, um, he would be arrested for, like, things here and there, minor offenses, and then some things that were not so minor. So he did both hard time and, like, little time. He even managed to escape from the Kansas State Reformatory, along with three other inmates. So escaping was kind of his thing. Um, He also was fleeing from authorities for a full year, which was a long time. I mean, that's a long time to flee. Um, but he was finally apprehended and sent to the same place that he escaped from, but it didn't take long for him to be removed from there and be actually sent to the Kansas State Penitentiary. Um, and that's where he met Fred Barker. So Carpus was released in 1931 and almost immediately he linked up with Barker and began robbing shops all around the state. And then when Fred's brother, Arthur Doc Barker, was released in 1932. The three of them just became the three amigos and started robbing shit together. Um, they would rob banks, they would rob trains, and they would rob payroll shipments, which I'm assuming is like armored trucks back in that time. Yeah. Right? Okay. What were they? Sorry. Uh, payroll shipments. Payroll shipments. I'm assuming that's just moving money type of it's stuff. It's something called payroll. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um... So this is when he started picking up the nickname of Creepy. And again, that's just because his friends say that he just got this creepy smile when he was talking about crime shit. This gang began terrorizing towns all over the Midwest, robbing banks, killing people in the process. Like you said, there was a lot of bloodshed during these Mm -hmm. bank robberies. 
Um, and it wasn't until they began kidnapping <laughs> that the FBI actually stepped in. Um, <laughs> the FBI was like, all right. All yeah. right. So they started a manhunt for these three people. Um, and the first victim of kidnapping that they had was William Ham of Ham's Brewery. So like Ham's Beer. Obviously, with someone owning a brewery, they were millionaires. So the family paid at that time $100,000 for his release. So they were successful at this kidnapping and extortion. So they felt all high and mighty and they thought they could do it again. And so at this time, um, because they had all this uh, confidence that they could do it, they staged another kidnapping. But this time, of course, they upped the stakes and they... Their victim was a banker called Edward Brenner, but unfortunately, Mr. Brenner was close friends with the then president Franklin Roosevelt. Oh, so FDR was outraged that they could do something like this to someone sure. so close to him. So he demanded the FBI find the culprits. So of course, the FBI started this manhunt again, right. but Ma and Fred. Barker were gunned down in a shootout with the FBI in Florida, and Carpus was almost caught in Atlantic City shortly afterwards, but Carpus and Campbell managed to shoot their way past the feds, and Carpus left his then-pregnant girlfriend, who was shot in the arm, there, and he still tried escaping. Um, he tried one last heist. He robbed a train in... Garrettsville, Ohio, which netted him $27,000, which is a lot of money, it sounds like. $27,000 is a lot of money in today's money. I know. That's what I'm saying. But yeah. for 1936, that sounds like that's a good chunk a of lot money. That's a lot of money, yeah. Uh, better than $16.38. That's right. <laughs> so um, in May, of, May 1st, so May Day, 1936, in New Orleans, or New Orleans, he was the last official public enemy number one of the FBI. I didn't realize they'd stop doing that. Yeah, apparently. There's too many. Yeah. They're like, can't rank them. Nope. (laughs) Probably. They're like, how do we tie for 50 people on public (laughs) enemy number one? So he eventually gave up without a fight. He surrendered to the FBI because he knew he had this pregnant woman uh, or girlfriend. So they ended up sentencing him for a life sentence to go to Alcatraz. While he was on in Alcatraz, on Alcatraz, he held a lot of jobs over the years. He was there. He was one of the longest serving inmates at Alcatraz from 1936 to 1962. He eventually was released from jail and died in 1979 in his small apartment in Spain. But here's and here's why I say that, because while he was at Alcatraz, he had many jobs. One of them that he seemed to like the most was working in the kitchen or the mess hall. And a lot of the tourists and a lot of the people, the the workers that still roam the halls during tours and whatnot, they hear someone, a spirit, mm-hmm. singing or humming the ham's beer jingle. What a strange... Isn't that weird? Yeah. Super weird. And they also hear, of course, pots and and, and pans right. banging and stuff. Um, but but the jingles. But the jingle like, is what like, cl- yeah. Like you might as well say their name. Zeroes you, yeah. zeroes you into him, 
And a lot of people who were incarcerated with him at the time say that, you know, the TV was on and whenever the beer commercial came on, he just like sinister, like sinisterly laughed at it. Like just laughed like, Haha, yeah, I kidnapped the motherfucker. Like I got away with that one. <laughs> All that to say... <laughs> he would do something weird like that then. The spirit still hums the ham's beard jingle as a way of saying, like, ha-ha, that was Diabolical. my crowning moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, and one would could wonder and does wonder, why would someone return to a place that was terrible? Like, he got out of the place and he died somewhere else. Um, but he really, apparently, really enjoyed working I was going to say, hall. he seems yep. like the type that mm-hmm. would just like to be chaotic. Yep. Um, and then also why they believe that he returned to the jail to Alcatraz was because even though he was interred in Spain, his family, when they bought him the the gravesite, you're basically renting them. I don't know if this is the situation for the U.S., but in Spain, you have to keep paying for the space. And his family, after a couple years, just stopped space, just stopped paying for his gravesite so the cemetery dug him up they evicted him from his gravesite and they put him in a communal burial ground that's not the situation in the u.s right (laughs) because Uh, they they took him out and put him in a communal ground the best next place for him that he would have been familiar with like his spirit would have been familiar with would have been alcatraz he was like screw you guys i'm going out i'm going overseas (laughs) Yeah. yeah oh my gosh that's so, a terrible practice to be like, sorry, you stopped making payments. All right. <laughs> yep. Out of your spot. All right. So next one is Capone. Because, So if you don't know about Al Capone. He's um, a whole story in himself. He's a He's whole He's one that I have story. written down to cover at some point because he is my favorite yes. mobster. I, I'll try not to step on any toes, but there is some things that you have to know about why why he might still be there. Yeah. Um, although of all the spirits and all the stories that are told of Alcatraz, his is one of the ghosts who notoriously is seen traveling. He has been spotted in different places, not just Alcatraz. So, although we know he had a a mob-type life, like that was Al Capone, right? He's yeah. like the epitome of all that. He um, had a very nice cell. Right, exactly. <laughs> yes, he lavish. did. He, he paid for that, yeah. That's so, before they froze your assets. <laughs> right. So... Like I said, you could do a whole episode on him. I won't take him away from you. No, cover but, what you would need to cover. Well, that's yeah. the thing. I'm I'll just going to touch on it really briefly. So the Valentine's Day massacre, yeah. one of the people that was killed there was Jimmy. Of course, he didn't have a finger on the trigger, but of course, of course he called the shots on that. We all know that. I mean, technically he was just a tax evader, but we know Capone, we know. <laughs> like we know what you did. So Jimmy, one of the men that was killed on that Valentine's Day massacre, is said to have followed him. The spirit of Jimmy followed him everywhere that he went. To the point where Capone would be heard talking to Jimmy to leave him alone while he was supposedly in his cell alone. Like telling Jimmy to leave him the hell alone. And everywhere that he went, because we know that Capone died for other reasons outside of Alcatraz. You can, you can say, Well, no, yeah. I mean, he died outside of Alcatraz. I was going to say, didn't he start to go crazy from yes, syphilis? exactly. Yeah, okay. 
But some people think that Jimmy might have had something to do with how he was being, like, how he was, like, So it's a toss-up of whether the syphilis caused him to see Jimmy or if Jimmy was truly making him insane. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So Al Al Capone, though, also, while he was at Alcatraz, played in the band, (laughs) played his banjo. Casual. And so, although he said that, like, not a lot of inmates liked him or, like, he didn't like the way that inmates were, like, super about their crime life because he liked to be, like, the people's mobster, you know what I mean? So, he would ask for special privileges to go into the showers to practice his banjo because he liked the acoustics there. So, during what would have been yard time, he went into the showers by himself to practice his banjo. Can you imagine being like, this one time at band camp in Alcatraz? (laughs) And I heard the banjo. It's like uh, an elite level. (laughs) So, now where the shower facilities are is where people hear the banjo playing. playing. And that's... Supposedly Al Capone practicing his banjo. Casual. Casual. Just all of the acoustics in he here. He seems like the type that would be an unbothered ghost. Yeah. Like he's not out to be violent or anything like that. He just like I think that's it. I mean, there's there's a story of like Okay, so there is one more. So Leon Thompson was released from Alcatraz after serving four years. He eventually uh, had a parole violation, ended up back in court, but while he was in jail, while he was in jail, he pen palled with a lady who was really nice to him, um, but he was one of those inmates that was really good at Alcatraz, so he made really good friends with one of the officers that was mm-hmm. there, and they, the wife, the new wife, encouraged him to write a book about his his time at Alcatraz, his four years at Alcatraz. Um, and he did. And it was self-published. The wife was, like, super encouraging. They printed out some copies of it, and they went out to the bookstore by Alcatraz and started selling them. Um, they did really good. They sold, like, 85,000 uh, copies of the book. And he he did so well, and he was seen as this person who, like, knew the history because that's what he did. He looked into the history of Alcatraz and all these things. Um, but eventually he became a tour guide, and as he was a tour guide, he saw a full apparition of his officer friend that had passed and was still haunting the jail or his spirit was still in the mm-hmm. jail. And other people saw it along with him, but he's like, I don't care what anyone says. That was my friend coming to say hi. So I'll leave you guys on that good note of Alcatraz and the ghost mm-hmm. stories. Um, some, I think, are on the loop. Of trying to escape. It sounds like Which it. is yeah. a nightmare. I can't imagine, like, like, you're risking your life to get off this rock, and... What if that's their hell? That, I'm sure it is. Yeah. Oh. So, um, that's the story of the ghosts of Aquachas that I could find. All right. Thank you. My stomach's in knots. <laughs> I love... I love anything Alcatraz. It was like one of the very first true crime mish things that I became obsessed with when I was younger, and I, I just there loved so it. I was so like, bad. "You're a weirdo," but I'll buy you every book you want. And you know, there's—I think you're mentioning in your last uh, in the Conjuring story how some people don't take seriously like what they're doing when they go yeah. and visit these places. I, what I will say about that is it's kind of nice watching everybody else do stuff like that because it makes me go, okay, when, if and when the time comes for us to do something like that, like, you have to take it seriously. Yeah. Don't be like an asshole on YouTube that's making exactly. a joke out of it. 
No, I agree. You gotta have some kind of level of respect. Even, even, not even just for, like, yourself and, like, it's a craft to, or, like, it's nice to have this access to go do something. But just, shit, you don't wanna fuck around with spirits either. Yeah. No, thank you. I've had enough of that tonight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. You know where to visit us. There's not going to be much chit-chat. I don't think there's anything after our goodbyes on this one. Yeah, we need to get out of this room. Yeah, we do. All right. Okay. Bye. Bye.